0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Hans Weinberg. I'm a historian of Japan at Penn State in America. Today I will be talking to Carly Buxton about her book, Unthinking Collaboration, America Nisei in Transwar Japan, which came out this year 2022 with the University of Hawaii Press. Unthinking Collaboration uncovers the little-known history of Japanese Americans who spent World War II in Japan. Uh, when the war started, many of the, many Japanese Americans were stranded in, in Japan and had to serve the Japanese state and act as Japanese during the war. When the war ended, those same people were mobilized again, but now in the service of American occupation. Within your archival data with oral histories, personal narratives, material culture, and fiction, I think a collaboration emphasizes the heterogeneity of Japanese immigrant experience and sheds light on broader issues of identity, race, and performance of individuals growing up in bicultural or multicultural contexts. By distancing co- collaboration from its default illusion with moral judgment, and by incorporating contemporary findings from psychiatri- psychology and behavioral science about the power of the subconscious mind to influence human behavior, Kali offers an alternative approach to history, one that puts historical subjects as deeply embedded in the realities of their physical and discoveries into environment. So, hi Carly, you might feel Carlo Carly. Hello. Uh, call me Ron, please. Thank you so much nice. for uh, coming, talking to me today.
0: Thank uh, you.
1: This is not the first time we're talking, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Actually, my research also touches uh, a lot lately about Japanese American experiences. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm happy to have you here again. So the first action a question we usually ask here is, uh, what brought you to this story? Can you tell us more about your own background and how did you get to research Japanese-Americans experience in Japan?
0: Sure, it is I think, you know, as many first projects are, it's a long weaving story that rambles from interest to interest as I tried to find, you know, what was my project going to be when I was a graduate student. So in college, I took a lot of classes about Japan and really focused on Japanese religion. And so when I went on to graduate school, I sort of wasn't sure exactly, but I thought I would be studying religion and I got really interested in Um, the religion of the Japanese state, particularly state Shinto as it was spread across the colonies. And from there, I started investigating how in the colonial government, the, the government arm tried to use so many different aspects of psychological life to control the populace, these colonized people, and try to make them feel part of the Japanese populace. So I was studying things like um, standard Japanese language and its impact not only on the colonies, but actually just in Japan, you know, the Nike as as well. Um, And I was studying standard dressed and and started looking at the ways that things became standardized and the influence that that had on people's um, approach to their own identity as Japanese or as a Japanese colonized subject. And so I knew I wanted to do something with that. And the truth of the story of why I got into Nisei was because I, I mean, Japanese is my second language and it was taking me a really, really, really long time to do all of my research. And so I started to look into ways that I could do more research in English. And that's when I started investigating and learning more about Japanese Americans and their experience in Japan uh, before, during, and after the war. And so it started as like, I need to finish my PhD here. I need to use more English resources. Um, And that's how I stumbled upon the history of these Japanese Americans, you know, the one I had ever heard of being Tokyo Rose. And uncovering the fact that there were tens of thousands of other Nisei, you know, American born, Canadian born, who were living in Japan during the war. I just was amazed that I had never heard of that before and that the only one I had ever heard of, despite, you know, taking many classes about Japanese history was Tokyo Rose. And so I thought it was a story that needed to be told. And it just opened Pandora's box of a wonderful way to connect my interests in identity, race, and how we as human beings navigate our environment through this amazing history that I thought the world needed to know.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny how... Um... You know, language and, and other considerations, stuff that you know, people usually don't really. You know, we all want to pretend like that we all know Japanese in grad school mm-hmm. uh, perfectly, and we and when we read the Japanese uh, fiction on on our on our, <laughs> on our spare time. But it takes a long time to learn Japanese, right? And oh, yeah. actually, for me, also, oh, yeah. uh, I did a lot of research in in. Uh, in my own language in Hebrew and German and English also Mm -hmm. as also the way composite also for me it led me to other directions which uh, in retrospect uh, was lucky to uh, I was uh, was lucky to discover and it's great to hear also that you had kind of the same discoveries because a lot of times we shouldn't think about those as limitations but as like ways to to do more even
0: I, I know, so, I know, and I would, yeah. I, I would get books from the library that I had ordered, and I would open them up, and I would see that they were not, you know, that they were not contemporary like kanji. That it was old-fashioned kanji, and I'm going, oh no, yeah. this is just double the time that it's going to take me to yeah. learn this.
1: It does take a long time so. pre-war. It does yeah. take a, yeah. a longer time. Uh, I got there, and I think you got there also. But it, it takes time, it's, right?
0: It, it took a while. So, yes.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I would prefer reading a text in German or whatever to <laughs> pre-war kanji at any day. Yeah. So, um, so I want to go back. You mentioned Iva Tagori, right? Uh, it's yes. Eva, right? Not not Eva, not Eva. Um, it's
0: it's Aiba. So Aiba Tagori, a- yeah, Aiba, like A-I- Aiba, yeah, Aiba, Aiba mm. yeah.
1: So the Tokyo Rose, right? That's uh, uh, yes. the name that she knows. Uh, she's perhaps most famous, uh, infamous of uh, Nisei, who stayed in Japan during World War II. Um, yes. So what does her story really tell us about Nisei? I mean, wh- why going back to this story again? right? What does her story tell us about Nisei and nature of collaboration? I'm doing like big scare quotes now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, air-, air quotes here. Um What's about national rational choice? And why do we have to unthink collaboration? As your again scare quotes here, yes, uh, as your book yeah. title shows?
0: So um, I don't know about you know. I think most most people who grew up going to high school here in America, as I did, might have heard about um, the the Nisei internment in the U.S. They maybe had heard about Nisei soldiers. Serving bravely for on behalf of the U.S. military, um, and then if they had heard anything about someone else Japanese American during World War II, it might have been Tokyo Rose. And um, as I said, you know, just it, w- when I kicked off why I got into this story in the first place, I thought it was just absolutely kind of earth shattering to me that there were so many people who had similar stories as to the, the one that she had, and yet she was made history's scapegoat because she really was in the wrong place at the wrong time, acted in a jarring way to the, shiftly, the, the rapidly shifting modes of preferences in the immediate post-war. And because of the way her story got manipulated, she was made a, state, a scapegoat. So she, as so many other Japanese Americans were, she was living in Japan when Pearl Harbor stopped all of the passenger traffic between Japan and the United States. And she had actually been trying to sail home shortly before that and lacked the proper papers. And so she wasn't able to make it at that time. Well, then now she couldn't make it home there were there were no options for her passenger travel ships to return to California where she was from so she was living in Japan and um, she needed to work right she needed to get rations she needed to survive this this war this conflict that had there was no end in sight and so to Make ends meet, she leans on one of her skills, which is English, and she starts working at the news agency where she ended up being a um, you know, a radio personality and kind of bantering back and forth with POWs and others who spoke English. And from many accounts, was um, a favorite of a lot of the servicemen in the Pacific. They really tuned into the Zero Hour show. Um, And come to find out, she is the one who, when the war ended, you know, everybody wanted to find out, to, to nab Tokyo Rose and get the interview with Tokyo Rose. And she's the one who raised her hand and said that she was Tokyo Rose. When in reality, there were many other women at Radio Tokyo who were performing the exact same job that uh, Aiva Toguri had been performing. And it's just because she raised her hand that she became the cautionary tale for so many other Nisei in the immediate post-war. She became a way for the American government to show that they were going to be tough on treason. And her story was just manipulated in a way that, you know, she was sent to prison for years and served a sentence um, and, you know, eventually was released and lived a quiet life in Chicago. Actually, my, my own advisor saw her once working in a, in a shop, in a Japanese grocery shop and, and recognized her. I was like, oh my gosh, that's Tokyo Rose. But the, the point of the story is this is one human being whose, whose story, whose example was actually lived by, by many other people on the front end trying to survive a war, trying to make ends meet. And it's really only in the post-war that their stories diverge. Iva Toguri was um, thrown into jail as a, and, a tr- and called a traitor. And all of these other Nisei were trying desperately to obfuscate hist- their history or their participation during the war. They were worried about how their story might've been told. And the reality is there's there shouldn't be a judgment play here because these were just human beings navigating their daily lives and trying to stay alive and trying to thrive. And so that's the point that I try to make in terms of why we need to unthink collaboration. I've got I got really interested as a graduate student in psychology um, and what we know about like cognitive neuroscience and you know, the fMRIs and other research from neuroscience really demonstrate that so much of our human behavior is based not on conscious choice, but on the subconscious. So we don't actually know what we're thinking when we move through the world for the majority of the things that we do. And so I thought history is, is telling the story wrong if they look if historians look exclusively to what people said, um, what people wrote, or um, trying to understand these like, self-professions of the way people explain their own behavior, and I think we should unthink collaboration because we need to look deeper at the environment that surrounded these people to study what their subconscious was telling them, because that's what charted their behavior.
1: Yeah, I think uh especially in this chapter, but also in the other chapter you really it's really focus on her humanity but it not yeah. but in 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 for me it was a very surprising way in the psychology and as i said before i just i i did i do also some work i just finished a book on psychology and i had a japanese american uh chapter there and and I wish I read your book before that, really, because it's really, <laughs> really kind of, I because you know I was thinking about it in, in terms of like choiceless choices, which is a term coming mm-hmm. from the um, Holocaust research about mm-hmm. people having no, no good choices, right? Operating within a framework, but you are actually completely rephrased this idea of choices, choices. What is what is choice, right? Mm-hmm. I and mean, you, exactly. you really, like, what is choice? I don't think, and, and you know, when we think of a collaboration, we usually think about that there is a choice, but Mm -hmm. you say the way we do things is not quite rational, right?
0: Right. Yeah. I think, you know, choice plays a part of it. It's not to say that we're just blindly walking through the world. There is choice. There is conscious choice, but it's just such a small part of our behavior as human beings. And so much of it is elaborated after the fact so people say, oh, I chose to do that. Or they look back and they have this hindsight hindsight bias and they're able to tell their story in a certain way and think of it as a choice that was made. But in reality, I just think it's so important that we de-emphasize conscious choice in favor of all these other elements that guide human behavior, you know, like the ideals and taboos that surround us in our environment. Um routines, discipline, the things that are embedded in the way that we just wake up and face the day, personal relationships and our obligations to one another and these networks of community that we have, and then also just the human drive to survive and thrive in general. There are so many things that contribute to the way a human being would navigate any situation, just a regular day, much less a, a situation during a really frightening and anxiety-producing time like wartime Japan.
1: Yeah. And and again, they didn't know the future, right? They had to make the best exactly. choice. Exactly. If, if, and if yeah. you, we we, and we concentrate on choice, they had to make choice within a situation where they didn't know what Japan was going to lose. Right? They didn't know what's, right. what the Absolutely. future was. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, I want to maybe just take a step back again uh, from this and talk a little bit more about paradigms and kind of a kind of bird eye view of the Japanese mm-hmm. American community and experience in Japan. As far as there is actually a community, there's something that uh, I think I would like to call back to as how much you can talk about the Japanese American community in Japan, which is yeah. a very different experience than in the mm-hmm. US, right? Yes, um, yes. So the main paradigm got, Japanese, guided Japanese-Americans uh, of this particular generation, right? Because generational issues in general in Japanese-American research is, is very important, right? Right, But this second right. generation people that you like, uh, Ai Tagori, is uh, their paradigms that guided them. You you, you mentioned a few, uh, you mentioned three of them. Uh, dekasegi, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a, sor- a sojourner, does it say in English, right?
0: Sojourner, a sojourner. yeah, sojourner, sojourner yeah. yeah. So,
1: mm-hmm. Uh it's France right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can never say the French <laughs> words. Huh? So, and there's a kakehashi, which is a wedge or a bridge, right? And so, those are the two first one, um, the sojourner and wedge, and kakehashi, the, the wedge. And then the third one is a legal uh, category: aliens ineligible to citizenship. Yes. Which yeah. uh, maybe you can expand on why those three. I mean, I guess the third one is is kind of obvious. Maybe the first two you can expand little bit more why they become so dominant how they were used by those young people when mm-hmm. they were in Japan. in America yeah. and in Japan.
0: Yeah, the reason I was interested in these paradigms in particular is that they're they're cited so many times just in the resources that I looked into of the Japanese Americans living at this time and they really emphasize say experience or japanese american experience as problematic as like inherently problematic and i wanted to explore that because i think it means you know if i'm talking about the subconscious if you're if if you in without thinking about it but if you're operating in a way that sort of sort of imagines your body as problematic or as um, contradictory, then that's going to shape and color the way that, you know, a human being approaches the world, talks about themselves, represents themselves. And so that's why I was particularly interested in these three paradigms. So um, De the this, this sojourner in particular was interesting to me because I used this as a way to introduce the history of Japanese Americans in the US. So with the original um, ability to immigrate to the United States, uh, kind of opening up at a very certain time in Japanese history, the first people who came from Japan to the US were really imagining their stay as temporary. And so they had temporary institutions that they built that were really emphasized on Japanese individuals staying connected to one another and to Japan. And so that's important for the lives of Nisei because eventually these are families that stayed and stayed and stayed and built a life in America. But the first institutions that were built in the U.S. had these strong ties to Japan and this ever imagination of returning to Japan after making some money in the United States That was the dominant narrative, certainly not across the board, but it was really a common approach to the Issei, the first generation coming to the United States, was this idea of being here for a time, let's stick together while we're here, we will eventually go back to Japan. And that's what really... Um, colored the development of schools uh, and the way that they were for Japanese Americans, of the Japanese uh, language newspapers, of the Nihonjinkai, or like some of these community groups. Really, there was this strong feeling of, this is Japan, this is my Japanese identity. It is always there, and it is separate from an American identity. So then comes the like kakehashi or kusabi, so like a wedge where the Nisei are now expected to appreciate both American culture and Japanese culture and deftly oscillate between the two two different cultures. So they're not combined. They're never treated as combined, not by the white teachers in the U.S. schools, not by the Issei parents. They're always really treated as equal and that it's upon the Nisei to bridge these two very different identities. And so yet again we see this like bifurcation that here's here's one side, it is Japanese, here is one, here is the other side, it is American. And so Nisei learned to code their behaviors in a way that was in line with how they expected they expected to want to be perceived in a certain setting. So like if they're going to their public school, they're going to be quote unquote acting American, they're going to be behaving in ways that they would never behave when they go to their Japanese, you know, resource language classes on Saturdays. They're, you know, much more reserved, or they're bowing, or they have a quieter voice. There are so many different, just physical behaviors and manifestations of this very different and opposite identity. Um, and then the the 1922 court decision of aliens in, ineligible to citizenship so this is the Ozawa versus the United States decision that basically said Japanese are excluded from naturalization you know i think many listeners will be familiar with that case but that just heightened the stakes for a lot of these nisei so that if they had these very different ideas of what it meant to be american or what it meant to be japanese suddenly the united states government was drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, these cannot coexist. We are expecting these to continue as separate forever. Japanese will be ineligible to citizenship only because you were born in America. Are you Nisei allowed to enjoy the privileges of US citizenship? But I've also read um, some accounts that Nisei were worried about that even potentially disappearing. And so again, they're made to feel anxious about their own identity and the, their place in American culture. So these three paradigms jumped out to me because they emphasized Japanese and American culture as separate, as very much a matter of self-representation. And Nisei grew up trying to display and code into one or the other based on what their environment seemed to demand and so that would become extremely important to the stories that I tell of collaboration and of and of treason or of wartime behavior because they were really just coding into these very separate categories that had been established for them
1: yeah the the, the binary thinking that Comes up with it. There's no place for nuances, just either this or that. There's no, mm-hmm. it, there's no, there's no something that kind of brings those two together. Um, there's no place for a spectrum. There's always like either American or Japanese, right? It's either you're right. And I think it's, it's, you know, when you live in Japan, you kind of, kind of experience it. I mean, of course, it's very different yes. for Japanese American, much more hostile environment than for us living in Japan, but you kind of understand people around you expect you to be other like they, mm-hmm. they, they there's this expectation there's everything is other Japanese completely different uh from yeah from the other um, yeah
0: yeah I, I think about it a lot because you know I think Japanese Americans who were able to connect with one another in Japan they felt such a sense of relief because yeah. they understood one another and I think the same thing goes for as an, an American, you know, when I was living in Japan, it was the best feeling in the world to be among other graduate students who were studying in Japan and kind of experiencing the same thing. And we could speak Japanese words when they made more sense, and we could speak English words when they made more sense. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a similar kind of um, f- familiarity with two cultures and being able to step into the ones that feel like they can serve us more in yeah. a given time.
1: Yeah, even though the stakes for us are a little bit different, right? Oh, in,
0: and, uh, in incomparable, yeah, yeah without yeah. a doubt, without a doubt, that's Yeah, because throughout your said. whole
1: book, I try to to imagine my myself being like in, in their shoes. I mean, this is in a way, in many ways, what's your book. But all of all of our work, we try to stand in the shoes as much as possible of the historical actors yeah. that we, we. and this is what also I was thinking about of my own experience in Japan. Um, oh yeah, but um. This one yeah, I, I, um, yeah.
0: Oh, I just wanted to mention very re- much yeah. along those lines, I um, on my website, I have a learning guide that I really wanted to be published in the book, but I think it was just a little bit too much for an academic yeah. press. And it has these exercises that try to help the reader get into that feeling of being out of place or of being uncomfortable. And so anybody who, who wants to can just go to my personal website, which is carlybuxton.com and have a look at the learning guide. But one of the exercises, for example, is to put a book cover, um, you know, like print out a fake book cover around the book that, you know, that I wrote around unthinking collaboration that is hot button or is going to make somebody want to, you know, feel Confrontational with you, and that's easy to do. It in this day and age, I mean, there's a lot that can really tip people off. And I think about yeah. the Japanese Americans being slapped on the train in Japan for reading a book with an English, English. cover.
1: Yeah, um, one,
0: you know. One so I, I, you- I encourage. Yeah. Yes. So I encourage people to to experiment with that and just try to feel it. Will never be the same. Of course, we're not a wartime. Um, Race, My race, for example, is totally different, but I think that it's worth trying to develop a bit of empathy for the historical subjects that we examine by yeah. trying to step into similar shoes.
1: Yeah, and I think especially for my, um, I mean, I teach in America, right, and especially for my uh, white American student, it's very hard to conceive themselves.
0: Absolutely. To put himself
1: in the shoes of of racial minorities and other minorities. Uh, not even work Without just a doubt. Reg- yeah. Just regular. And yeah. uh, remember, and we're kind of digressing here, but for for uh, my colleagues in Japan who was a graduate student and, and even now when they're very wondering about this, you know, every time you step in a convenience everybody look at you and you have like the gaijin <laughs> seat next to you, the empty seat next to you in the train because no one will yeah. sit next to you. And I all know. those things. I mean, this is not, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't come close. It's not even... You know, it's in a way, way far of the spectrum of what people uh, what racial minorities feel, but this really gives right. you a little bit of a taste. Um, yeah. That's why this. I
0: think that, you know, ex- experience doing, doing what we can to travel the world and put ourselves into new environments is just so important for the empathy that we are able to develop for other people. Because like, as you say, it, it just, it doesn't compare to being to uh, the experience of a racial minority here in the United States, but it. It is important, I think, for our experience as human beings just to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations and try to imagine that tenfold, a hundredfold in the people we're studying.
1: Yeah. And in this situation, as you mentioned before, and I want to go back to this a little bit, um, maybe just briefly, um, community is very helpful. Like we've all said how we we go to our other grad students, other like uh, mm-hmm. foreign community and how much it, it helps. Um, in. How much of a community did Japanese Americans in Japan during the war, did, how much they have? Because in Japanese experience, community, of course, they are a separate group. Right? They are a group, right. they are a community, they are put in separate spaces, they're separated as a group, right? Mm-hmm. So as far as, of course, their situation in, in situation of Japanese American experience in a situation of Japanese American in America is defined by a group. Can you say that their situation in Japan is defined by isolation being individuals? Because they're not a group, a separate group per se, right? Right.
0: But they, they are it, not it,
1: treated it, as such at all.
0: No, and it was very different before the war versus during the war. And it's also very different depending on the circumstances of the Japanese American individual themselves. So there were, I mean, many, many of the people who I consider as you know Japanese Americans living at war war living in Japan during World War II were the children of Nekasegi families who had moved back and were fully assimilated into Japanese life. And maybe they had this history of being born in the United States. And so technically that makes them an American citizen, but that that was not a part of their daily identity. They hadn't lived in the U.S. long enough to feel an affinity for American culture. That group was really... um, you know, it, it's different from the Nisei I studied who were older for the most part when they came to Japan. They came a, a, usually more on their own for studying, um, you know, like a study abroad experience or to live with a relative or to try to find work because it might have had more opportunity in Japan at that time. There were lots of reasons why these individuals would have come to Japan um, when, at the time when they came that were not because their entire family had moved back to Japan. And so this was the group that sort of felt apart. They had, before the war, they had organizations at certain schools, for example, to, um, you know, like our, the RIA, Raised in America, that's, that's the example of one club that existed in Tokyo where they could get together and um, feel community. And but during the war itself, these were a part of the the soft propaganda that I talk about, where you really couldn't code into those American behaviors. Like you're not gonna have an active Nisei club during World War II because it's dangerous to be associated with the enemy, with America. And so what was in many ways, I wouldn't say thriving, but an established community of, of American born Nisei living in Japan before the war, really during the war, had to fizzle out uh, because of the expectations on these individuals and what they did to be able to survive and contribute to the lives of their families and their expectations, what the things that were expected of them during the years of the war.
1: You mentioned self propaganda. I want to maybe. Uh focus on this a little bit and ask you about the differences uh between soft and hard propaganda
0: mm-hmm. and when i
1: teach this subject i usually use uh, dower's classic uh, race and Power the pacific uh, yep. uh but as your book shows i think that like there's more to this than just racial stereotypes there's more to this than mm-hmm. what you call hard propaganda can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, soft and hard propaganda and how they operate differently on japanese americans
0: Yes. So the reason I liked to I I use the discussion of hard propaganda and soft propaganda is because I when I came into studying propaganda and then I found with my students as well you hear this word propaganda and you think about you know posters on the streets of American you know scary American soldiers um, you think of uh, radio programs and billboards and these sort of stereotypical concepts that we have about about propaganda. And what I try to emphasize by talking about self propaganda is that this is not where it ends. It doesn't end with the poster that you walk by. It seeps into your psyche as a human being. It seeps into your subconscious and there you know John Dower for example places such a huge emphasis on Did they, did these individuals believe it? You know, um, he says they didn't believe it. And what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter, you know, like it maybe they didn't believe it, maybe everybody was like, that's ridiculous. But because it seeps in and influences the norms that they're absorbing and conforming to as individuals, individual human beings navigating the world, it influenced their behavior, regardless of. Whether they believed it fully or not. And I use soft propaganda because it's it's meant to echo soft power, um, just the the more subtle ways that power can function. So in this, this is the more subtle ways that propaganda can function. And, and it's based on the idea that we as, as individuals absorb and conform to projections of ideals and taboos that we see around us constantly as we navigate our world. Um, because everything is charged with meaning, and maybe it starts with a radio program, you know, that it's by some <laughs> ultra conservative um, kind of talking head, and then you, and then it just seeps into the ways that humans regulate their own behavior, and whether they believe it or not, they are coding into those projections in a certain way.
1: Yeah. And, and as anybody who ever researched wartime, uh, the wartime era in Japan knows there's so many things in daily life that were, I mean, and, and you talk a lot of them in the book, how everything was connected mm-hmm. to the war, right? Right. And you can still see remnants of it, of, of militarism. In retrospect, we call it militarism, right? You see like the kaigunkare, mm-hmm. the like mm-hmm. curry curry powder, like Navy curry powder right. and and and, uh, and and stuff like this. but. I think the day-to-day here is very important, right? And you you do talk a lot about the regimentation of the day-to-day, and also like yes. bodily practices. Um, can yes. maybe we can talk about more in and particular about a, a word that I know you like, loyalty, right? I mean, yes. in, in what way does the regimentation of daily life and bodily practices, which I found very insightful, I mean, the the impact on how we move through the space, uh, how our body is is kind of produced, like. Mm-hmm. serve to produce this kind of loyalty. How do you produce loyal yeah. subjects, loyal bodies?
0: Um, yeah. One work that I found, well, two works that I found really instrumental in the way that I was able to write this section of the book. The, there, the first one um, was Takuditani and his his discussion of mnemonic sites in Splendid Monarchy, and there's such an emphasis there of the collective mentality drawn together through such activities as, you know, um, it, I would say like bowing to a shrine when you're expected to do that, or eating a um, Hinomaru bento, right? So the, these elements of daily life that are so imbued with a narrative of collective meaning that they do indeed draw together a populace, um, that felt so important to what I was studying and really echoing this idea of, it doesn't matter if they believed it, they were still behaving in a way that they were being told to behave. They were ingesting the foods of Japanese patriotism, for example, and that has an impact on the body. The other work that was really fundamental in the development of this chapter was um, Foucault, so discipline and punish. I mean, as any graduate, good graduate student, especially at the University of Chicago, would do, you know, I think that really influenced the way that I thought about how regimentation of daily life, whether it's putting on a, an, a, a uniform that looks like the person next to you, or whether it's facing a certain direction at a certain time of day. These are all ways that our minds are bound together to feel affinity for our countrymen um, on a psychological level through discipline of the body, through regimentation, through the way we are forced to navigate spaces by, you know, being being segregated as white Americans or not being segregated as Japanese Americans who just continue to go about their daily lives during the war. So. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that the the production of loyalty is such a huge element of the history of Nisei. And I think that there is so much to be explored and so much to be said for these subtle processes through which the body is regulated, through which individuals represent themselves because of the ways that they're um their lives are regimented or they are wearing certain uniform clothing or they are eating the same things. It draws their minds together as a as a collective community.
1: Yeah, I was also thinking about how you heard work about daily life and, and which doesn't oh, yes. deal yeah. deal with the war, but you can definitely um well maybe I just because it 'cause it's been a while since I read it, but uh you can definitely use this and I do want to pick, uh, you, you want to talk about Tak Fujitani's work, uh, but not mm-hmm. about the mnemonic side, but about the later book, the 2011 or 12, the race, um, race for empire, race for empire, which is uh, yeah. of course, uh, immediately connected to your work, and you do mention it, and because um, I'm I'm writing it about total war now, uh, which is what he writes also, and about mm-hmm. the, the the connection between race and total war. And when I read your book, I just, I just kept thinking, because I just we read uh, Fujitani also, I could think about it specifically, mm-hmm. there was a story you told about two brothers, uh, I don't remember, I think it's yes. chapter five, right? The two brothers, uh, mm-hmm. Donald and Ralph, uh, yampoku as they yampoku
0: say? yes. Mm-hmm. Yonpoku.
1: I, I, I was thinking, what's the kanji for that? Right? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, it's
0: like, <laughs> e, back then it was M, right?
1: Like, Yen, M. Yen was M, was yeah. Oh, so yeah. it's uh, Yonpoku, okay. so they were opposite opposite side of the war right and they meet in hong kong was it in shanghai it was hong kong right and they almost did Um, the exact same job hong kong right
0: yeah one one brother was on the other side of the war yeah
1: so i i really want to talk about mobilization and 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 how did they deal with mobilization in both countries because of course in the american side they uh, they mobilized uh, as Japanese Americans. Their japanese is important, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mm-hmm. quite work in, in the Japan side, right? I mean, they don't right. mobilize as Americans. because So in the Japanese side, uh, and Tafujitan doesn't really talk about Japanese Americans in Japan, right?
0: But mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm.
1: Japanese side, it, it, when in the American side, their, their Japanese-ness, their ability to provide insight into the right. Japanese mind, it's quite mm-hmm. important, um, and I just. Uh, but in Japanese, side, it doesn't quite work like this. So, um, what does it? T- what What can your book tell us about total war? It's not something that you really talk about, but specifically, if you think about Tak Fujitani, talks about Korean Amer- Korean experience mm-hmm. in Japan. How's it different from the Japanese experience in Japan, and the Japanese so, American? So it's kind of a triple corporate. Yeah. Sorry, it's a bit complicated. But yeah,
0: I think about know, tre- well, three
1: different sides. Yeah.
0: What I what I think about as you ask that question is that I'm so grateful that for that I did the research when I did because this was like 2014 2015, and at that time there were still some individuals who I could interview, you know, I in Japan as I was doing field work who were these stories. I mean, they had been born in the United States. They served as soldiers. During World War II for Japan. And there I sat, you know, in their living rooms or, or talking with them and, and hearing their stories. And, um, you know, ten, ten year, almost 10 years later, that's not a feasible way to do this research. Um, so I do feel really lucky that I was able to collect these stories when I did. And what I learned about the experiences of Japanese American soldiers who fought in the Japanese army was that they for the most part were were not utilized for their English language skills or their affinity knowledge about America at all. Um, some were, but it was quite rare. And um, more so they were trying to downplay that element of their identity because they were worried about what that what people would assume about them, about their loyalty um about their obedience and so there were some stories that i incorporate into the book of people who who really their even their superiors did not know that they had american citizenship until for example a communique from the red cross came and 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 found the soldier and told them that their family was interned in such and such a camp so um this was not uncommon that the soldiers were trying to assimilate, trying to code as as fully Japanese. And that was how they faced the fact that they were fighting in the Japanese army. Down the line, they told the story in, in different ways. And one that comes to mind was a soldier saying, you know, I made the decision. I was going to cast aside my American self and become Japanese. I was going to fight for Japan, but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with choice. Like, did he really do that? Did he really say like, I'm going to become Japanese or is that how he has rationalized his own experience years after the war and, and tainted by war memory and how things turned out. Um, So I I think it's a really interesting point of contrast to study the behaviors of Japanese American soldiers who fought during the war. And there are some, some scholars who study this in Japanese And a few here and there who are beginning to explore this a bit more, um, you know, beyond just like Japanese academia, but I think it's just such a fascinating story and so telling about the way race was construed in Japan as, as something, a different way from how it was construed in the United States during the war
1: yeah it's 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 completely different um i mean there is i mean i do agree with fujitan there's a certain a rage not a rager but changing ways of, of cons- cons- uh, the way people race is, is fought on fought mm-hmm. about i mean he talks about vulgar racism versus uh inclusive racism um i, I would think that japan is, is different especially if you compare mm-hmm. it to koreans right and the, right. the way the koreans were treated the way the japanese were treated and uh, yeah it was Japanese Americans were treated. It was very different. There is a erasure of race on one hand, and then there is an mm-hmm. emphasis on race on the other. Well, not mm-hmm. not erasure. I mean, erasure of Korean difference, I guess. Doka.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the for for Japanese soldiers, so Japanese American soldiers, the idea that Japanese blood ran through their veins was so critical to the way that they were trusted as um, part of the Japanese citizenry during the war. Even if, in you know, like Iva Toguri for example, was saying, I'm American, like intern me. <laughs> and being told, well, you know, she's Japanese. Oh, and she's a woman, by the way. So I think she, she, we think that she will be okay. You know, she's not going to cause too much trouble. So I think that the emphasis on Japanese blood running through the veins of these individuals gave them a measure of trust. You know, they were a, presumed to be loyal to Japan until proven disloyal.
1: Yeah, I want to go back to disloyalty to and loyalty and surveillance in, 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 mm-hmm. in a minute. But before, I want to talk about the post-war for a bit, because this all changed abruptly. Once the occupation starts, when the war ends, the occupation starts, and suddenly the Japanese uh, blood was uh, de-emphasized, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Um, What what happened when SCAP takes over?
0: Um, So it's chaos when SCAP takes over, and they're desperately in need of Japanese language ability to be able to disarm uh, Japanese households, to be able to try to figure out what in the world is going on with the food supply, scap's in in need of resources, but there's a really interesting dynamic where Douglas MacArthur um, does not trust people who are too Japanese. So people who speak Japanese too well or spent too many years in Japan, they just, you know, despite the fact that they could have, and in some cases were instrumental and could have really helped in, critical needs for scap at the time, they were, they had a shadow of doubt on them. And so there some of the histories that I have read or or accounts and, you know, personal autobiographies and memoirs talk about how SCAP was in such desperate need for Japanese individuals that there were people there who really didn't speak much Japanese at all, but, but were Japanese and um, were put into these relatively important positions for the occupation simply because they had a modicum of ability to navigate in both cultures. Um, and if you swung too hard in the Japanese direction, then that almost negated your ability to contribute in a major way in the occupation when the American you know, occupation came to power.
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but we're, we're pushing the 50 minutes. So I want to ask like, oh, no. one, more, uh, one or two more questions. I want to go back to loyalty and maybe in the context of surveillance. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, uh, surveillance, uh, and again, to go back to wartime experience, but maybe even in the post war, American, American society is also a lot of surveillance and oppression and soft and hard propaganda, as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. So in the end of the book you write that loyalty is the refrain that echoes through the history of transwar Japanese America. Uh, it's probably clear to everybody listening to us that you don't you take issue with with the the word loyalty yes. right with, with, yeah. um, can we use loyalty in some kind of a constructive way or is this a word which is completely this uh,
0: well i I mean, I always think that that words remain useful as long as they're as long as we as scholars are open to their reconsideration. I mean that's what I've done with the word treason right or collaboration. You know I think that loyalty is like collaboration. It's a curse word in Japanese American history because it's so fraught with how these individuals were judged and how they lived their lives and what they tried to prove about themselves. I mean, some listeners may be familiar with the loyalty questionnaires that these people had to commit to during their internment and that they were asked to fill out, you know, a questionnaire asking if they were going to be loyal to the United States. And, And, you know, that doesn't just go away. I mean, that is a painful part of history, particularly when these were people whose sons were going to war on behalf of the United States you know that is it's just it's it's not fair it's painful to remember and yet loyalty becomes the overarching narrative and the story that is told because in many cases Japanese Americans had to be flag waving american or like 100% american these are i'm these are not my phrases these are coming from from their mouths about the ways that they had to behave to demonstrate their loyalty to the United States to try to cast away it's like a chip on the shoulder of oh, I know you're expecting to me, me to be disloyal so I'm going to go even beyond and be more loyal than you could than you know your average white american so it's it's a fraught word um it it's emotionally charged and it is the story that is told about the Japanese American experience during and after World War II. Now, Tokyo Rose's story complicates that, you know, and I think a lot of Japanese Americans felt the need to distance themselves from her example and to associate themselves as much as they could with the stories of the, you know, brave 442nd or some of these Nisei soldiers. And... It, it just shaped it just shaped the way that they would tell their stories for the rest of their lives. So I do think that there's there's saving to be done of loyalty. We have to keep studying it. We have to keep understanding it. Um, but it is very much the litmus test by which Nisei were judged during the war and after and decades after as well.
1: Yeah, it it does it, yeah. Thank you. It's great because there's something that really kind of bothers me. I'm not a Japanese. I'm a historian of Japanese America. I just come from the Japan side and kind of dipping my toes in this. But it's, there is this binary that loyalty creates. And it kind of affects all of, a lot of the literature is produced about Japanese America. But it's either like completely 100% Americans, you know, 442 and all of this who are mm-hmm. patriotic or we stood up. Mm-hmm. We stood up for oppression. Uh, yeah. You know there's either this or that, and there's not much place for uh, a continuum in between, it seems to me, in, in many cases. It, right. It's not quite about scholarship, but more about stuff that produced by the community itself. You know, right. there's, it's, it's pretty binary. So yeah, I can, I can see your frustration with, with the word and, and how it can uh, yeah. create those things. So again, I have so much more to talk to you about. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> Uh, I think we should uh, conclude. I want to ask you before before we, we end. Uh, what are you working on now? What do you what do you do now? What what your what's your next project? Okay. What what you work on? So um,
0: so I'm a user experience researcher, and I I continued to write the book even though I had left formal academia, and I had gotten really through this experience of trying to understand the subconscious brain um how humans behave how humans make decisions i got into user experience research which is really probing for insights about how um how we as human beings make decisions and so i i did user research for an education company and now i run a startup um, and it's a digital health startup, so I mean, I've had a massive career change, but I do think that it is underlaid by my continued passion for trying to understand um, how what human beings say is different from what they do, and even user research right now is there's a huge emphasis on you know, trying people having a conversation and explaining why they're, why they did something or, you know, where they buy something. But, but what I'm studying, what I'm continuing to study is more psychologically, like how are we presenting ourselves? So how is it that if a a participant sees me as a white woman, what are they going to say to me? That's different from what they might've seen if I were a, a white male, you know? So I'm very curious about how humans present themselves. Um, in the context of the store, the expectations that are laid upon them. And I think there are huge implications for that in user research, which is a growing field at not just startups, but in in many companies today. So I continue to study that. I don't teach about Japan anymore, except that I occasionally go around and um, give talks about about my book or mentor students. Um, You know, that's become kind of, something that I never thought about when I entered the field, which is uh, around elements of, of authenticity. And I mean, I'm white. I was raised in the US. I have no Japanese blood. Well, actually, 23 andme tells me that I have point 0.1 percent Japanese blood. But I mean, the ownership <laughs> of yeah. being able to tell that story like I just I never thought about it when I entered the field. And I think about it a lot more of I don't know what 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 right do I have or what um, how much can I contribute to describing this experience when it is very much not my own experience? And that's not just a race thing. I mean, I think historians struggle with that because they speak of people from different times, but it's just something that I've started to struggle with a little bit and has been top of mind recently.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a cliche. The past is another country, but in a past of another, other past. but for us, the, the, the... They are, I don't want to call it a nation, but the distance that we have from the people that we study, they're not yeah. just uh, in, in another historical time, they're also from another culture. Right. And in your case, they have very specific uh, immigration experiences that, that we don't have. Exactly. And they lived under, yeah. uh, as we said before, under like uh, discrimi- discriminatory structures that we don't uh, experience, even... Uh, so yeah, I totally, I can totally see where it's coming. I'm kind of amazed you did all this with a PhD in history. I mean, I told you before I want to come <laughs> talk to my grad students about what you can do. You... <laughs> yeah, I it's, love it's that. really, yeah, a PhD it's inspiring, is really
0: very flexible, very flexible. <laughs> I have found, and and you know, I'm in the deep dark years of wondering if I would ever finish my degree. I never thought that I would continue to use my my methodological skill set in the way that I have continued to use it every single day. You know, so that's what I often tell graduate students when I talk to them. is like, no matter what you end up doing, this is not a waste. I mean, every single effort, every single day that you spend trying to puzzle over huge questions is going to be massively impactful for the way that you, whatever career you choose, the way that you um, continue to study and understand our human condition.
1: Thanks. That's really inspiring. So let's end on this really bright note. Thank you very much, Carly. Thank you for coming.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy.